0: Advent is a season of waiting. But on this first Sunday of Advent, as I listen to these urgent words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, I'm wondering if too much patience is actually a good thing. Dr. Bill Hall, the excellent Baptist theologian and pastor, once shared a modern parable that imagines three demons— and in a fashion similar to C.S. Lewis's screw tape, from Screw Tape Letters, they discuss what their strategy is for conquering this world, for overtaking it for evil. And the first went around proclaiming this message there is no God, the story goes. But even though some people acted as if there were no God, Most people knew in their hearts that this message was not true. And so the second demon announced, there is no sin, went around whispering this in people's ears. And again, although many people acted as if that message were true, they knew deep down that there was something flawed and broken, that this simply wasn't true. And so the third was smarter than these other two more effective at distracting people from the goodness of God's intent. He actually convinced them that the message he had was true because he didn't attempt to change people's beliefs. He made no attempt to argue against their deepest experiences or convictions. He simply said something that he thought they would be prone to believing. His message was, there is no hurry. And that's a devilish prospect indeed, to be people who have too much patience, to live without urgency, to just wait around and never get in a rush to pursue the good things, the things that are of God. Well, Advent begins with Jesus in a hurry. Each year in our lectionary, the first Sunday of Advent takes us to a gospel text where Jesus is talking about the end of all things. It's peculiar. Advent marks the beginning of a new church year, as Amy reminded us. And yet we end up starting in our gospel text with the ending of all things. So not with a little town, no barnyard animals or swaddling clothes. Instead, there's these startling images of the suddenness of change. There's no star overhead. No, instead it's the darkness that's prevalent all around us. There's no Messiah, tender and mild described. No, instead, it's the one who comes as a thief in the night. This is where Advent begins. In the words of the priest, Fleming Rutledge, It is not a season for the faint of heart, because Advent begins with Apocalypse. The Gospel of Matthew is among those writings in our New Testament, written with a perspective that is apocalyptic, from the Greek word meaning revealing or uncovering and referring to the ultimate end of all things. And so an apocalyptic outlook assumes at least two things. First, that this world is not as it should be, that there are things about this current age that are broken, that are flawed, that are dangerous. And second, that all will be made new through the ultimate power and promise of God. We find this type of literature throughout the Bible, and it's very often written in times of crisis. And the Gospel of Matthew was written at such a time. A time when Roman troops had just destroyed the Jerusalem temple. And so many signs of the power of empire were imposing on people. And then, too, Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God at such a time, when death-dealing forces surrounded and when so many people lived lives of despair. So they needed to know that God would uncover, would reveal dramatic deliverance to come for them. In other words, they needed to have hope. But for those early Christians, this message of hope it sometimes had a byproduct. It could cause them to become quiet, to become still, to become patient and neglectful of things that matter most. We see this in the early writings of Paul, for instance, as he cautions those early Christians against being idle or lazy amidst their hope. It was almost as if they were leaving it all up to God, so focused on the future that they missed the meaning and the possibility of the present moment, leading them to neglect the here and now, themselves, their neighbors, their responsibilities, the creation entrusted to them, the vulnerable, the poor, the suffering. They had anticipated so much the work of Christ that they had forgotten the work, the call, the meaning of their own lives and actions. Well, maybe we can relate to that. I think we can see that same propensity for neglect in our own lives and certainly in our wider system of belief all these 2,000 years later. Our belief about the future, about what is ultimate, it can so impact our lives and our actions in the present moment. We can, as a pastor friend of mine is fond of saying, become so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. And it's not generally deliberate or plotted. No, it's subtle. It's silent. It becomes ingrained in us, sometimes manifesting in the outgrowth, outflowing of our theology. It can sound like things like, well, God has a plan in the face of human tragedy or calamity. Well, and in part, that's resting in a view of the providence of God, but it can also become a form of patient neglect. Forgetting that God's good plans also depend on the faithfulness of human beings to one another and to the creation where there is enough. Or sometimes this patience, it might sound like our prayers in the face of injustice, war, another mass shooting, another occasion of bigotry or violence. And so often the human response, the response of the church, is to feel overwhelmed, to be silent. There are no words we might think or say. Or if we find our breath, if we form some words, they might take the form of that ancient prayer of lament. How long, O Lord? But can't you just imagine the divine response to that? Why are you always waiting on me? Have I not already shown you what is good, what is just? So how long, O people, God must say to us? How long, O church? Because so often we can become too patient, too idle. Which can happen when we say things like, everything happens for a reason amidst the grief and the evils of this world, which might comfort us in the moment, but leave us searching for the reasons, the logic in the moments of shuddering fear as we wake in the night with a start and with so many questions. This popular notion stems in part from Romans chapter 8. As Paul talks about God's work amidst all that occurs, all things work together for good. We usually translate, but a more faithful translation, true to the text and true to what we have experienced, might be that in all things, God works for the good. In all things, God is always scrounging for the good, doing the most that can be done to bring about the good. And part of how God does this it's through the good efforts, the faithful action, the active lives of those who know what it truly means to be people of hope. Because hope is not idle. It is not still. It is not settled. It is not patient alone. It is active. The great 20th century theologian Karl Barth once said that hope means to take the next step. And you know this. If you've ever ever had to get out of bed in the morning to have your feet hit the floor after tragedy, after the death of someone you love, without reason or logic, still moving forward in a way that honors them and entrusts them to so much unknown in the mystery of God's care, you know this kind of hope. If you've ever endured injustice and you've been told to just wait, to wait on God, And yet you found that there was a reserve of strength in you that kept you moving forward with the enduring belief that people can actually change. That your life can be a part of the possibilities of justice and mercy that God holds ever before our world. You know this kind of hope. If you've ever lived through complete calamity, the upheaval of your life, and yet you've managed to take one step and then another to continue doing what is good and right, to care for your neighbor to provide for those depending on you to remain faithful to the call of christ and the community of christ's church amidst it all this is what it means to be a person of hope advent hope hope in dangerous times hope amidst so much that would threaten to impose or overwhelm it's not simple optimism that believes things will just get incrementally better and then sits back waiting for it to happen. No, this is hope in the power of the God who promises to redeem all things and in the meantime empowers people to be about that work of redemption here and now. And there comes a time... Where we have to choose this. Where we have to be about this urgent work. And the gospel was written in that sort of time. And Jesus proclaimed the kingdom in that sort of time. And this Advent, we remember that we live in such a time as well. And so in Jesus' words in our gospel passage, we have to stay awake. We have to be alert. We have to remain watchful. Not simply passively, patiently waiting for God's ultimate redemption. But recognizing the relentless love of God that we know in the most dramatic of ways in the coming of Jesus Christ. The God who will never stop pursuing. The God who will never stop coming back for us. The God who looks at our world and all of its brokenness and fragility and says in the story of Jesus' coming, I'm going there. I'm going to make my home in the midst of all of that. And that God calls us to be equally relentless in our love and care for this world. So wake up, Jesus says to us. Recognizing how often we are asleep. Like in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, Jesus says. But they were asleep. And it's hard to admit that we have to wake up. We would prefer that patient, passive faith would be enough to save us. We want the way things are to be good enough very often. Sometimes we want all to be made right, yes, but simultaneously we want all to stay the same. And amidst it all, don't we want to believe that there is always plenty of time? J.P. Marquand captured this truth in his novel. The novel is entitled So Little Time, and it tells the story of a playwright with the best intention of being a good parent, of fulfilling all of his most critical responsibilities while pursuing this ambitious literary career, and one day, His oldest son grows to the point where he puts on a uniform and is preparing to go to war and the father suddenly realizes that the life of his son could end and so feverishly, urgently, he seeks to make up for the years of neglect only to discover, as the title laments, there is so little time. Indeed, perhaps one of our greatest mistakes in our lives and certainly in our lives of faith It's not that we misunderstand the existence of God. It's not that we mistake the reality of sin and injustice. No, our greatest mistake might be that we misjudge the amount of available time. And perhaps Advent is actually a season of hurry, not of rest. In the words of Barbara Brown Taylor, Maybe it is a time to live a caught-up life, not a put-off life. Maybe it's the time where we become more urgent about the things that matter most. Maybe it's the time where we become impatient with the things that are unjust. Knowing, as we do, that Jesus will appear in the places and the times we could least imagine to herald the dawn of a new day and to ask us whether we've been awake, whether we've been watching, whether we have been living in that new day in the meantime. After all, Jesus had every opportunity to be patient. But I love what the poet Madeline L'Engle has written He did not wait until the world was ready, till people and nations were at peace. He came when the heavens were unsteady and prisoners cried out for release. He did not wait for the perfect time. He came when the need was deep and great. He dined with sinners in all their grime, turned water into wine. He did not wait till hearts were pure. In joy he came to a tarnished world of sin and doubt, to a world like ours of anguished shame. He came and his light would not go out. Because it was Jesus who said, I have come to proclaim release, not in some hoped for future, but here and now. I have come to preach liberation for all people, not in the conclusion of all things, but now. I am not waiting, but passing around the word, the identity of beloved, here and now. And so we remember what Jesus came to teach us. That God in Christ does not merely come to find us in some hoped-for perfect moment, and the ultimate conclusion of all things. No, God sweeps the house urgently now. God waits, watching for us on the road of our regret, and welcomes us home now. God leaves the comfort and the safety of the sheep pen to find even one of us who is lost, and not when it's too late, not when the time has passed, but even now. The kingdom of God is near to you, Jesus once said. It's not somewhere else. It's not merely coming or arriving in some anticipated future in all of its fullness. No, it is here to you and is near to you now. And when that is your hope, when that is what you can imagine, well, then it changes your present. My good friend, Dr. Bill Leonard, was preaching about this apocalyptic apocalyptic hope once. He's a good friend of our church, the founding dean of the Wake Forest Divinity School, and some years ago he preached my favorite sermon I've ever heard on the coming of Jesus. He was at First Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina, and he looked up into the domed ceiling and he began to talk about the apocalyptic. He began to talk about the end of things, the coming of Christ began to talk about all that we anticipate and wait for, and Dr. Leonard began to be stirred into a frenzy as he railed against those who estimate a literal date for Jesus to return, and especially those whose understanding of heaven and its coming leads them to care very little for this earth and its needs. And at the height of his emotion, he said, you know, if the rapture comes and I'm still on this earth, I've decided that I'm not going. I'm going to hold on to a tree. And then he continued, Because, you see, I've been reading the New Testament, and I've decided that I better listen to Jesus. The one who told that story about the one lost sheep, and the shepherd who refused to give up until it was home. Well, on the way out the door, people were giving him fits for just trashing premillennialism, the left-behind understanding so popular at that time. But as they did, he noticed that at the very end of the line, there was a teenager. A lanky 17-year-old kid. And he was hovering around and waiting. And then as the line cleared, the young man shook Dr. Leonard's hand. And, well, I liked your sermon, he said. And can I ask you a question? Would it be okay with you if I stayed here with you and Jesus until the last one made it home? dr leonard said he drove away from that church and heading east on i-40 he cried all the way and didn't stop till he reached statesville my god he thought to himself here i was with this great little rhetorical flourish and the kid hears it and now i gotta stay (laughs) and so we all have to stay we have to stay present we have to stay awake we have to stay working we have to stay watching we have to stay active in this world where there are people to find and there are wrongs to be righted where there is justice to pursue and there is grace to live out where there is hope to make known right here and now stay with the one who could have waited and instead came And so this Advent, friends, let's get in a hurry. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.